Hello and welcome to the HPP Podcast. This is the HPP Podcast Editor, Arden Castle, and each week we explore a new topic related to the Health Promotion Practice Journal. Whether it's demystifying publishing, breaking down a new article, or discussing public health-related topics with our editorial board members, we hope you enjoy each week's exploration into health promotion practice. This is your host, Arden Castle, and today I'm joined by Cynthia Piquet, Dr. Claire DiMasotto, and Dr. Kathleen Rowe, authors, visionaries, and the editor of Health Promotion Practice Journal, and they're going to help us explore the past, present, and future of Native and Indigenous voices in health promotion practice. But before we get started, I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves and have them share where they're calling in from. So Kathleen, will you get us started? Yes, thank you, Arden. I'm Kathleen Rowe, and I have been editor of Health Promotion Practice since 2018, and I will complete my six-year term in December of this year. I've had the pleasure and honor of working with all three of you, Claradina, Cynthia, and Arden, as we built out the space for Indigenous voices in our journal. Today, I'm calling in from Danville, California. Hello, my name is Claradina Soto, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Southern California Keck School of Medicine in the Department of Population and Public Health Sciences. I am Native. I am Dene from my mother's side and Hamas Pueblo from my father's side. I was born and raised in the Bay Area or East Bay of California. For over 20 years, I've partnered with American Indian, Alaska Native populations in public health to reduce, prevent mental health disparities, cancer prevalence, commercial tobacco use, substance use. I'm a longtime advocate for our Native communities and other priority populations to really advance the health equity and reduce health disparities. I'm super excited to be here. I'm calling in from Los Angeles. So I would like to acknowledge our presence on the traditional ancestral territory of the Gabrielino Tongva's people. Thank you. Yet a she sent to begin a she, Cassani didn't initially, Nikaidin a Bush's chain, Torchini Dashuche, Nikaidin a Dashanelli, Ecotego de Nets on Nishle. Hi, everybody. My name is Cynthia Begay. I am Navajo Hopi, and I am calling in from Bakersfield, California, also uh, Yokut land. I am a student, actually Claradina student at USC in the Department of Population and Public Health Sciences, also a senior epidemiologist, and really happy to share this space with you all. So thank you, Arden. Thank you all for being here today. I'm so excited to be among mentors and mentees. And so I'd love for our audience to get a better idea of how we all met in everyone's introduction to Health Promotion Practice Journal. So Kathleen, will you kind of set the stage for us? Sure. Early on in my time with HPP, we had the opportunity to put together a supplemental issue that was funded by the Office of Health Equity of the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. Uh, the focus was on tobacco and health equity, particularly in marginalized and ethnic and culturally diverse communities. We put out a call for abstracts, welcoming people to submit an abstract of a paper that they would like to have considered for this special issue. And in our first months, we got over 99 submissions. So I'm curious, Claradina and Cynthia, how did you decide that you wanted to submit to this call? We were really excited about this opportunity, knowing that it was tobacco and health equity focused. Given the data, which is 
reaching indigenous communities throughout the state of California. I mean, California is very unique and diverse, over 100 federally recognized tribes, and we have urban Indian populations. And so we had collected data with funding from the Tobacco Centers of Regulatory Science, giving us this opportunity to try to reach every single tobacco retailer among California tribes throughout the state. Cynthia was so instrumental to this because we needed somebody to collect this data. And what we were trying to do is assess the retailers in California on tribal lands, the availability, the advertising and the price promotions of cigarettes, e-cigarettes on tribal lands. So we had some really rich, unique data. Never has this been done in the state of California. And Cynthia was instrumental, not only collecting the data, but training people to do store observations. So we were in person at these stores, collecting data, interviewing the store owners, trying to understand what they were selling again and access availability were they meeting fda regulations and so i'm sure cynthia can share a little bit more about that but it was really an opportunity to share the data that was collected it was quantitative and it was qualitative because we were having store observations but we were also doing interviews with the store owners or the workers at the time yeah thank you and i think that kind of what Kathleen will allude to in a little bit is when we were submitting the manuscript, this was my first time being a first author. I just started the PhD program and with the manuscript, I felt like, okay, I have to check these boxes. It has to be very structured. And what I learned in class, here's the intro, the methods, our results, you know, let's stick to the numbers and then, you know, have our, our conclusions and send it out the door. And also knowing that this was, I think it wasn't, you know, two cores related. I think it was FDA sponsored. It just felt very stringent. And so that's what we went for. And, you know, we were invited to submit. And then we had a really nice uh, call from Dr. O who put the red ink all over, but I'll let her speak a little bit more about that. <laughs> well, one of the really fun things about putting out a call for abstract or a call for papers is that you get people who really are passionate about wanting to be able to publish in this particular issue, right? They want to they want to be part of this collection of papers that talk about the thing that they have in common. So you get to read as an editor or people on the review panels, you get to read these great papers that people are, manuscripts that people are submitting, hoping to get into the issue. And when I read this one in particular, I felt like, there's a story behind this paper that I'm not, I'm not hearing when I read it. I'm not able to see how they did what they did. Their findings are interesting and important. Their discussion is really good. But there's a bigger story here in this paper. I felt like they were trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. Because as Cynthia says, too often the standard research paper presents methods and findings as if everything was logical and linear and everything went according to plan. I was as I was reading about how they went to all of these stores on all of these tribal lands and reservations and, and talked to all of these people, I there, I just figured there's a, there's a bigger process story here that will be really important for readers, not only to understand the findings, but also to understand how this kind of work gets done and the importance of having Native people doing the research. So I reached out and said, I love this. 
but I don't want it this way. I, I love this paper and I want to see it in the issue, but I also want the story of how you did what you did. And, and so that, that's how we met. We started meeting about the paper. We started talking about the importance of the organization of a research project, the ethical principles behind it. We started talking about all of the things they had encountered from geographical challenges to weather problems, to trying to do this in the winter, to the location of reservations and the infrastructure around them to make them hard to access during certain times of year. There was such a bigger story there. And so we just got together and, and we're, we're determined to tell the full story, the process, the methods, the outcomes and the implications. And I would say it wasn't just coming together because I think that a lot of relationship building happened during that process. You know, Kathleen wasn't just the editor who sent an email, you know, within business hours and, you know, kind of was the reviewer too, <laughs> so to speak. And that, you know, she really was having these conversations with us after business hours. I, distinctly remember her like okay I have 20 minutes of going to Zumba but let's like look at this iteration because we were really on a tight tight deadline and so I just found a lot of trust in Kathleen and that she was really wanting to be an ally for our communities for our paper and just also really feeling mentored right from the get-go because like I mentioned I was a first year PhD student my first time being a first author and really going through this process and leading it so I really that really set the stage kind of like where we are today. And so I really, really appreciate that. And there's so much to be said and so much appreciation to Kathleen for creating that space, but also that mentorship, but also that, again, that space to, to write what was needed to be said. She wasn't giving you this box of like, you need to do it this way, this way, this way. No, she just knew there was so much more to be shared and so much more to be told that she helped it flow out in more detail because it was such a unique story to share. Exactly. And it ended up being the story we wanted to share. <laughs> so I think that, yeah, we were really, really happy with just how it came out. I mean, even down to the detail of being able to say that you and I are tribal members. You know, and I think we may have even put our tribes in there. We don't normally even get to do something like that in our manuscripts. So there was a lot going on that we really, yeah, uplifted our story. Absolutely. And what's so important about the literature that we're able to publish is once you've done that, then other people are reading your work and we'll see that they can do that as well. And so I won't be editor after a few more months, but the impact that you two and your colleagues have made on the field will be there forever because you have named your identities, you've named your tribal affiliations, you have also, I think you talked in the paper about just, again, some of the challenges of getting to the places where people are living and, and making those real aspects of the research process. They aren't details that we hide. And to make the researchers look like they're sophisticated and fancy and get things done so easily and on time. No, you told the real story. This took longer than anybody thought. You worked with people who were from the communities or knew the communities in order to get the data. All of the trust issues, the respect, going through tribal and reservation protocols you laid that out as part of what is necessary to do the research. And once you did it, then others can read it and realize that they can and should do it as well in their publications. So I was grateful. I mean, that's amazing to have this because again, our community is so unique and diverse. 
I stated California is over 100 fairly recognized tribes, but in the U.S. there's over 570. And there's a lot to be shared and told and to be able to have just this one about this community here in the state of California is being added to the literature. That's huge. And so like you said, when others read it, you want more, right? Because of the uniqueness. Yeah. And I, I think if you look at the way that our Indigenous scholarship has grown within HPP over these six years, you see evidence of the doors that you opened in a couple of ways. For example, it wasn't too long after your paper that some of our colleagues in New Zealand, Chrissy Severinsen and her colleagues, wrote a paper in which they asked us in advance, could they use the Maori words in the body of the paper? Or did they have to just use English words? And it didn't make sense to them to use English words throughout the paper when the curriculum and the program had been developed and implemented in Maori. So we were able to introduce the Maori language and put a little box, you know, up in the corner that defines the words. So the use of native languages into papers is something that has happened as a I think as a result of the way that you established, you know, sort of the model for scholarship in HPP. We have the same thing with a paper that's going to come out in November in our special issue on Indigenous food sovereignty, where a group from Oahu ask again, can we use our own language? Can we use the Hawaiian words instead of English words? Absolutely, of course. I love the behind the scenes of just going from this supplement and this call for papers where you know that you have all this really rich data. And I love that you keep all alluding to this space, this space, this space. And I love that it is something that we can actually point to. It feels like this tangible space that we've created here in HPP and the importance of keeping that life and energy behind the paper. It didn't have to be sterilized to belong in a funded space. It it can be, and it is research, and it belongs with all those other papers, with all of the nuance to it. And I love how Claridina said it was a space to write what needed to be said. And so in creating this space, what what is this space? Can you help our folks understand? And we've got some great examples of what that might look like and how other papers following yours have kind of fallen into this space that you created. But what has happened now that you actually prioritize those relationships with the forefront, having these conversations with Kathleen between Zumba and really making it a relational space? Can you tell me a little bit more about what this is? Sure. Sh should I start that? Um, yeah, we can start it with APHA. <laughs> right. So one of my early goals as HVP's editor was to increase the amount and the visibility of Native scholarship in our journal. I had been influenced really deeply by a Native American poetry class I took as a sophomore in college. When I was introduced by a Native professor to Native American poetry, I found that my way of understanding the world was opened and deepened and extended in a way that I, I almost had never felt before from a tradition that was not my own. And when I was beginning my own research career and doing my own writing, those, those notions of the importance of relations, the sacredness of what we do in our daily life, the ability to speak across time and, and holistically was something that I tried to incorporate into my own community-based projects and absolutely into the writing and publications that I did. So I wanted to bring that freedom and that perspective to HPP. 
And so I was so happy when in my very first year, I came upon Cynthia's manuscript and met her and Clara Dina and all of their colleagues. So once this particular paper was published, I asked Cynthia who I met at APHA at the American Public Health Association annual meeting because I sponsored a little get together for HPP folks and invited Cynthia to join us. I asked her if she'd like to join me in piloting what became our first annual Native and Indigenous Voices celebration. So Arden, when you ask what is the space, the space is the journal and the regular appearance, like hopefully every issue of something from uh, Native and Indigenous scholars and the communities with which they're working. But the space is also what Cynthia and I created together, which is November. So to celebrate, I think it actually began as a, as a counter to the American Thanksgiving holiday and the false narrative of that story, but also wanting to bring forward the gratitude that is embedded in that strange narrative. Cynthia and I organized our little counter protest, which was the first Native and Indigenous Voices collection that first Thanksgiving period, the end of November. So I organized a list of recent HPP papers by Native and Indigenous authors and arranged with our sponsors for those papers to be open and available for anyone to download during the, those two weeks in November. And Cynthia gave me some images from her own personal collection to use in social media and other promotion. And we used her network to send a letter to everybody she knew announcing this first ever open collection. And we gave it a go to see how it would work. Cynthia, is that, is that your recollection of how it all got started? Right, yeah, and I think the timing of the APHA conference, it typically, for folks who haven't been, happens you know, at the end of October and the first week of November. And so Native American Heritage Month is the full month of November. And so we met, I would say maybe, you know, the first couple of days of November, we had to get it together within a week. I gave her my list, the images, she pulled the papers, negotiated with the publisher, to make sure we could have, I think it was about five papers to be open access and the mine being the six that was already open access. And I think that in the end, it, it was a really great product, but what I really appreciated was Native American Heritage Month is great. It brings a lot of awareness, but it's also very taxing on us natives <laughs> who are educating and being part of these spaces. And what I really love about this space that's created is sure, it is a labor of love to get the network out there and the images, but I think it offers something to our community. And like Dr. Rowe really opened my eyes to is the importance of the metrics behind the number of downloads, eyes on the paper, because to publishers that translates into importance. And that was her, you know, I felt like the heart of what was going on as well is that she really wanted to uplift and help our communities. We are publishing out here and now we need this, I guess, extra set of eyes or awareness around the papers that are here, the exposure really, and, and getting that. And a lot of times, especially with our communities, sometimes those paywalls are the barrier. So this is something I feel like is a very reciprocal kind of giving back to our community. And in a time when we natives give a lot during that month in educating folks around our issues. And Claire, Dina, I'm not sure if you wanted to add anything to just kind of the uniqueness of this versus our experience when we go into November, we're, we're very, very busy. <laughs> that is a wonderful story. And I guess I'm just thankful again, because a scholars, native scholars need these opportunities to publish me as a researcher, still up and coming, you know, in the academia world and the importance of that you, Cynthia, as a student and giving that opportunity to write and publish. I mean, that's also something so important that's 
a difficult thing to do sometimes. And so to be able to have that space and to be able to have that contribution because our Indigenous people and communities are making lots of contributions, you know, and so being able to have that space to recognize that and being given the opportunity to engage our voices is really critical to not only us, but and to inform our communities and non-Native communities conducting work in our Indigenous communities. And we saw results immediately. You know, Cynthia and I pulled that together and and then we watched to see what would happen. And we were really amazed. There was a huge increase in the number of downloads of those particular papers during the period in which they were open, which tells us that the papers got to people who would not have seen them otherwise. And there was also an immediate increase in the number of submissions from Native scholars. Over the next six months, suddenly we got more and more submissions from Native people because I think they saw not only that we accept and that we publish, but that we celebrate and that we honor and we respect and we appreciate the scholarship from Native communities. And so that we might be a welcoming home for them. You know, part of the, the space that we've created is also creating an infrastructure. And Cynthia mentioned that Native scholars are exhausted going into November. I think Native scholars must be exhausted all the time because you're doing so much work. You're doing the work the right way, which is deeply community involved, which is very demanding of your heart, your time, your spirit, your, your health, all, all of it. And a place in which I have really seen from my vantage point of managing a journal is peer review. So for people who are listening, you know, every manuscript that comes into a journal has to be reviewed in our journal by at least two peers who are qualified to review that paper, have expertise in the topic or the, the population or the methods that are being used. And then their recommendation about the quality of the paper and the manuscript and whether or not it should be published then goes back to the editor. And then we engage in a process of negotiating whether or not this paper can be revised and be ready for publication in our journal or is maybe better elsewhere. You can imagine if there's a small number of scholars to begin with, there's going to be a small number of peer reviewers who are available to do that work. And so what often happens is I think that editors invite non-Native people to review Native scholarship. And that's part of where the disconnect happens, I think, sometimes in publishing and maybe getting papers accepted or getting manuscripts reviewed appropriately. You know, Cynthia and I together decided that no Native papers would come through peer review and HPP without a Native reviewer on them, at least one. But that can be really hard on me to find Native reviewers and much harder on Native reviewers to take on yet another voluntary service-oriented activity as part of your scholarship. So part of the infrastructure we've developed in this space is a dedicated group of, you know, a big list of Native scholars who are willing to respond to my request to review because they understand how important it is to have their perspective in the reviews that come in. And that came, you know, the people's understanding and willingness to commit to that comes from this, I think this month that we have dedicated now five years in a row to promoting our commitment to Native scholarship and the glory of Native scholarship. What we have, you know, we're committed to promoting it, but what we're promoting is really good and important work. Yeah, and I really like that you mentioned the review process because I think that I really learned a lot too just from our experience in reviewing my paper and just 
uh, a lot of the compassion and grace I felt during that process. And so I've definitely helped too in the 11th hour to review some papers for you, Kathleen, because, you know, again, we weren't able to find those folks, but I'm also very committed to that as well. And I remember reviewing one of the papers from my tribe from Navajo, and I just, I wanted them to bring out more of their story, just like you did for me. And so I had different nuances of what does the chapter mean? What does this mean? You know, and saying, remember, you know, non-Native audience is going to be reading this, really explain what this is and connect these dots. And so eventually that paper turned into a podcast episode and we got to dialogue a little bit more, but I think there was a little more meaningfulness behind that scholarship that I really appreciated and, and want to carry forward too, because I think, yeah, this dynamic can look different than that sterile environment like Arden had mentioned. I think there's two other ways in which we've done something that that is meaningful in promoting the scholarship. One is our social media. When we go into the month of November, Cynthia and I work really hard to plan a social media campaign on Twitter and then other social media platforms as we can. But Twitter is the or Twitter or X is the social media platform that the publishing industry counts or still values most highly. And so that's where we focus our energies. And we work really hard to, to create, you know, a look, a really beautiful set of images and content in the posts about the papers and the authors that will not only promote the papers, but will help just anybody scrolling through to perhaps stop on their feed when they see the image and see, oh, what's that about? And just in that second split second of scrolling through their feed, even if they just keep going, it'll get in their head that there's some interesting scholarship going on from Native authors or in Native communities or Native people have something to say about this topic or that topic. And I think that that's, you know, plant seeds. I hope that that plant seeds in high school students who are on Twitter and, you know, doing something else, but they'll see somebody that looks like them or an image that captures their attention and have that in their mind as a possibility that undergrads, you know, working on their degrees will be scrolling along and something will catch their imagination that they too could be a scholar. Or there's a place for the scholarship about their life experience, their lived experience in the professional world and, you know, graduate, you know, it just goes on and on. So I think that we've been able to create opportunities for people to learn about Native scholarship as they just go about their daily social media life. And I think that's really potentially powerful in ways we'll never understand. And then we would be remiss if we went on one more second talking about what we have created to not talk about the importance of the podcast in all of this. When Cynthia and I started together, we didn't have a podcast yet. And so Arden joined us, I think, the next year, perhaps, and, you know, it was Arden's just vision and tenacity and skill to put our podcast together. And from the very start, who did some of the very first episodes were Cynthia and Arden. And Arden and I talked as we thought about doing this podcast about the importance of letting papers jump off the page, letting authors speak beyond the words that they've written for a scholarly journal and really talk about the meaning of their scholarship in their lives, the hidden story, the backstory, the best story about the paper. And I think Arden, what you have contributed to this space is really extraordinary. I think we have over 20 episodes now. After three seasons, we have over 20 episodes on our Native and Indigenous Voices playlist, and we'll have four or five more before the end of the year. It's quite an extraordinary space to let people just talk about what they are doing and why it matters. And 
been really proud of that. I am also really proud of how far we've come and what you know, you all started and I was able to jump into and help grow with not only increasing just the visibility of Native scholarship, but also catering to the way that journals value scholarship and those statistics, and then also helping uplift just scholarship in general that's outside of the paywall, because as you're talking about all the labor that scholars need to go through, that actually enables those communities to have access to the papers, because if you're not associated with an institution, it's very hard to get access to journal articles. So not only giving them a space to produce that content, and then also giving it back to the communities, which I think is really important. Also with the increase in submissions, I love that it's encouraging scholars to bring their whole self. And perhaps this is a little redundant, but Claire Dina, I wanted to bring you back in and ask why we need this space. Is identity something you can always bring to scholarship, to your papers? I know Cynthia was talking about being a reviewer, trying to pull that story in, but can you tell us a little bit more about why that space might be needed? Visibility. It's so important, visibility for us. And so being able to exactly what Kathleen said, it's it's really building up and it's creating that pipeline and that reach and that possibility, especially because we barely make up 1% in our universities for Native Americans, for American Indian, Alaskan Natives, you know, and then trying to get them into master levels and or PhD and knowing that if they do higher education and seeing this type of work being done again by Native scholars, being the authors, and again, as Cynthia said, being identified, the tribes, I mean, that's how I identify oftentimes is like, hey, they're from where I'm from, you know, and you get that sense of just like excitement, you know, and then you want to read more and learn more and you get excited that you're represented, right? That piece is just so, so important. And so this is definitely needed again, I think, just to get that voice out, to engage, to continue those partnerships, but to really get the visibility out. And I think it's important for retention, of course, again, for students, Native students that really need that mentorship, that guidance to get this out, to show I can do this, this is important. And then also for that recruitment piece where somebody will and see and say, hey, this is the kind of work I want to do, right? This is something of interest and something to look into. Having that is just really, really important, again, to really get that voice. And again, I think even just, again, that creating and increasing the diversity of our communities being in this space. And I want to say that Claridina has been doing it. I'm a product of it. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> we met during my master's program and she was, you know, the first Native PhD level person in my field. She was the first Native principal investigator I've ever worked with, you know, has mentored me through my entire career in the PhD program and most of my master's really. And I think that, you know, a lot of us who are even more emerging, right, Claire, you know, like you're emerging, but I'm even younger and, and we really are standing on your shoulders. And so I think for me, just sharing the space with both, you know, Kathleen and this publishing world, but also, you know, I wasn't even able to get to this state, you know, to this submission without your mentorship and, and really everything that you're saying you embody and you, you teach all of us. And so I think that that's really where it starts for us too, in terms of that visibility is you just being present and doing the work and being in, in the institution, which is not easy <laughs> or a walk in the park. So really just expressing that gratitude, but wanting the listeners to really understand too, you know, that a lot of this ends up actually being started by you to bringing us all here today. So really want to thank you for that. 
Thank you, Cynthia. You're going to make me cry. <laughs> no, I was, I was really struck when I heard the number again. I knew the number, but I guess you just always need to be reminded of it. 1% of people in universities are Native American or Native Indigenous people. It makes me think about the importance of, well, first it makes me think about the burden and responsibility that is on those of you who make up that 1%. There's so much work to be done in an academic and scholarly career. It's hard enough to begin with when you have lots of friends and lots of colleagues and lots of people opening doors. And it must be really hard when the community is so small and then therefore so so burdened. So one, it makes me think about what can allies and friends and colleagues do. And one of the things that a journal can do besides just publishing the work that's so important and meaningful in its scope. The other thing a journal can do is bring visibility to the work. And here's how that helps. When Claire Dean and, and Cynthia, you know that when a, a scholar is coming up for review within their institution or is seeking grant funding, one of the things you have to often show is the impact of your work. And one of the ways in which impact is measured is downloads of the articles. All of those data are collected by the publishing industry and publicly available. So when Sophie, our parent sponsor, the Society for Public Health Education and SAGE, our publisher, agree to let us have papers, quote, in front of the paywall for two weeks, and then we actively promote them as hard as we can, getting word out to everybody, download them now because they're free to everybody. And the downloads increase. Not only is that wonderful for me as an editor, because it means that our content is getting out to more and more people, but it helps the native scholar. It helps the authors because they then have that bump in the downloads that just might probably wouldn't have happened because people wouldn't have seen the papers or had access to them. And the same thing happens with social media. Social media may seem like such a frivolous thing, you know, and in so many ways it is, but there's a metric that's counted, again, by the publishing industry called the alt metric, which calculates automatically every time that a particular paper is mentioned in a blog post, in a policy document, in a government statement, or on Twitter. And so every time that somebody clicks on the link or forwards or posts or posts and makes a comment about one of our social media posts about a paper, in this case, papers by Native scholars, that increases the alt metric that is assigned to that paper and to that author. So when we're actively promoting papers, we are also supporting and actively promoting the authors. And so I think that something that I hope that, that other editors take as seriously as we do at HPP on our editorial board is the value of once people trust us with their work, because there's a lot of places you can send your work. Once people trust us with their work and we negotiate together and, and get it ready and publish it in HPP, there's a lot that we can do on our side as allies and, and supporters to make sure that people see the work and to make sure that the scholars are getting the visibility and the credit that they deserve. Can I share another way that we too try to promote the literature? Because oftentimes our communities don't read the scientific publications. So we typically will have a community report. And if we cite it in there, they know they have access to that. They know that that exists and that there's more details or some of that other piece in there. So that's another way to also 
be able to promote that, you know, because oftentimes, again, our community may not read, but at least if we have that other other dissemination activities to ensure that you're adding this literature reference in as well and knowing that that is available. Absolutely. And I love not just getting folks to submit, but also having a plan for how you want to disseminate it as other researchers and also as the journal that once that paper is off of your desk, it still needs to live on. Your job is not done if you truly are an ally to that scholarship. Furthermore, thinking about that visibility and the importance of continuing that pipeline for retention, whether that's either just a proof of success or recruitment to continue increasing your representation and visibility beyond. And so because we have created this space specifically here, I want to know, Cynthia and Claire Dina, how you can help folks in that pipeline. And so what would you say to Native students and new scholars who are wondering if there is a space for them to be true to themselves and their communities while working in research and even more specifically writing and publishing about their work? Native students are so needed at the college level, higher education, no matter what it is you do, there's so many disciplines to be a part of. And you're so needed in all levels, environments, back in your community, at the university setting. I mean, again, so many different levels. And so one is I want our students to feel comfortable, have that confidence, but yet you have to fear the unknown because it's a very scary place. It was very scary for me moving into the space as a native scholar, not knowing what to expect, not knowing that there was nobody like me to do this. And so sometimes you might be in that space, but to search for it, to know that there are native scholars out there. And I hope that they're close to home, close to you, close to where you can reach out. And I can be pretty close to hundred percent that they would be there to support and to guide you. Or if, if you're not getting that, you know, find, you know, ask for other names and stuff. But I mean, you are so needed in this space for many native students or just native scholars and folks from our communities to continue this work, especially in research because of the inequities and the disparities that our communities face. And so we need the people that are at the table and not people talking for us, but talking, you know, those that are at our table that can speak on our behalfs, you know, and advocate for us. That is key to progression, key to addressing these inequities. So even having your voice, even having your physical body being there is really important. So if you can reach out to myself and or Cynthia, that's a first starting place, right? We can connect you to others and maybe where you are or what your interests are, or just to get the conversation going, but you are needed. That's my, my big message to you. And I definitely, that's what rings in my head thinking about when we met, because I think, you know, being a master's student, exactly to what Claridina is saying, one, you just never imagine that you're going to be in that space or have the opportunity to get there or that you belong there. So really hearing that message and repeatedly, because her words have not changed and it's still true. And I, you know, I still need to hear those words even as I'm finishing up my program, but it is really important to find your community in whatever ways you can. And so one of the ways that I did was, you know, doing summer programs, building my network, you know, a lot of now, you know, it's so easy for me to find, you know, other Native scholars in my field because a lot of us have done the similar programs and, you know, we can really lean on each other, even if it's just for moral support or collaborating as authors. One of my 
friends in my summer program is now one of my committee members on my dissertation committee. And so it really comes full circle. But I, what I will say is that academia, it has a certain culture and it doesn't have to be that. And I think remembering that we do come from a collective society, you know, those, those are what our values are in collaborating and coming together. And in any ways that you can are able to access that in whatever way that looks like for you, that's really important to carry through because it is really isolating. And like Claire Dina mentioned, there's less than 1% of us at the undergrad level and even less at the doctoral level. And Claridina went through it alone, you know, as a student, I went through it alone, but of course I, at least I had Claridina, not sure she had a Claridina when she was there, but it just really is important to build that community, but also remembering, you know, how important your story is and your research. And one of my mentors that said, you know, you spend your life and your career finding your playmates. You want people who are going to want to tell your story and work with, and not everybody you get to work with is going to have the same vision. So you do have those opportunities to find folks like Kathleen, who are strong allies in the community, like Claire Dina, who are able to mentor us and, you know, help us, you know, get to the next level for our communities. Because like Claire Dina said, we really are needed in our communities. We want our Native-led research to be at the forefront. And that's why I'm in the program. <laughs> and that's what has been offered to me through Claire Dina forging her path so that I could come up right behind her too. So yeah, I think that's pretty much it for me. I love it. And you are totally needed. I will tell you as many times as you need to hear it. You are both so fantastic and wonderful and absolutely needed physically at those tables, wherever you are as researchers, scholars, you are needed. And I really appreciate you all extending yourselves so that folks can reach out to you for guidance for that community and help them along their way as they find that collaboration. And as we close out, I just want to come back to Kathleen one last time of now that you're at the end of your HPP leadership, you are stepping away now. And so are you satisfied with what you've achieved in this area and what's changed in six years? We've kind of talked through some of that, but how do you feel leaving this space? Oh, I feel um, so just so much gratitude uh, for the opportunity that I had and the, the colleagues that I worked with and what we were all able to do together. In terms of Native and Indigenous scholarship, I feel really pleased, but not satisfied. Uh, can't be satisfied because as you probably could hear from this conversation, the possibilities are endless and the opportunity to contribute to amplifying such important work is also kind of endless. So as I prepare to step aside I, and think about what I hope Native and Indigenous scholars will feel going forward is I hope that authors will feel welcome and respected. Uh, I hope that they will feel seen by HPP and that their submissions will be met with interest and respect, that they themselves as people and as authors will be treated with respect, treated well at HPP. I hope that from the things that Cynthia and I and the others have built together that uh, Native readers are proud of what they see and read and, and hear on the podcast from us. I hope that non-Native readers are excited and moved by what they read and change themselves by the sensibilities that guide health promotion when it's done by Native and Indigenous peoples. And I hope that new vistas and new horizons, new ways of knowing open up for all of us because of what we publish from Native and Indigenous scholars. And I hope it continues. Yes, I really hope it continues as well. It is fantastic. And 
I just really appreciate you all spending time here and sharing space with me. It has been a pleasure. And I'd just like to thank you, Cynthia, Clardina, and Kathleen for being here. And if listeners want to find out about the papers that they've written or the collections or the playlists, all of it's available on the SAGE website. There are spots that will point you towards the articles that are available and free for download. If you want to follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn, you'll be able to see where those new papers and podcast episodes are available. And please help us promote this work by sharing the links widely among your own networks. At the HPP website, you can also sign up for new article alerts so you know whenever new articles are published on any of the topics that you're interested in. And all these links are going to be in the show notes for this episode. So thank you, Cynthia, Clardina, and Kathleen. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. It has been a pleasure to be among you all. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the HPP podcast. If you enjoyed this content, let us know by tagging us or responding to our promotions on Twitter and LinkedIn. You can also find out more about the Health Promotion Practice Journal from Sage or Sophie's websites. All of these links can be found on the podcast website at anchor.fm forward slash health dash promotion dash practice. Take care and have a great day.